Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and we also have a guest from Credit Suisse, Lara Warner. Joining us later from New York are our US banking editor, Laura Noonan, and Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor. This week, we'll be discussing the latest money laundering scandal at Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank as it moves its operations out of London and back to Frankfurt, and finally, Goldman Sachs as it changes the guard at the top. First, though, to Credit Suisse, where FINMA, the Swiss financial supervisor, has identified weaknesses in a number of corruption scandals relating to money laundering, including those involving the world football body FIFA, the Brazilian oil company Petrobras, and the Venezuelan oil company PDVSA. Well, here to talk about the issue and the broader problem of money laundering at European banks, I'm joined by Lara Warner, who is Head of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs at Credit Suisse. Lara, thanks ever so much for joining us. Tell us exactly what has happened here and how bad a bit of news it is for Credit Suisse. Thank you, Patrick. First, I would say it's important that people understand that AML regulations have really increased dramatically in the last 10 years, and they continue to increase for all banks. This is, this is AML, anti-money laundering techniques. Correct. Having said that, I think for Credit Suisse, it's important to understand we have thousands of wealth managers in countries around the world who are not all executing their controls sufficiently. I think second for the bank, compliance at that time did not have a role to ensure 100% assurance and quality for the firm. So the bank's AML anti-money laundering requirements were not consistently met. So when our CEO, Tijan Tiam, came in 2015, there were many of these factors that we recognized, frankly, at the time, and we really took immediate action. I think, first of all, He created the compliance organization as a separate function. At the time, it was part of the legal organization. This gave it quite a bit of focus. He put my role at the level of the executive board, which gave us stature. And we actually did invest quite significantly in the compliance function. We grew it by over 800 people, which was a significant improvement. But there were some other things that I think were also very important that we took measures really to address the issues of the past. I think the second thing was we changed the role of compliance at Credit Suisse such that they were required to ensure 100% assurance of our anti-money laundering controls before individuals became clients of Credit Suisse. So obviously this allowed us to, in essence, correct some of the issues of the past And thirdly, we then reviewed all of our existing clients to ensure we were comfortable with the documentation and the risk. And then finally, and very importantly for the future, we invested in some very state-of-the-art technology in order to really enhance our ability to see what we call a single client view and all of the activity of our clients, 
which we built in six months. It's continued to be enhanced, uh, and it's now used by over 500 compliance officers at Credit Suisse. We'd always planned to, frankly, provide this capability to our wealth managers and the management team. In fact, we estimate about 100 senior supervisors will have that before the end of this year. So I'm confident we can meet the expectations that FINMA has requested of us, and I would just close by saying we obviously take these historical issues very seriously. Uh, I think the FINMA announcement is a very serious announcement, but having said that, we were very pleased that FINMA recognized the amount of work that we've done over the last three years to really uh, dramatically change this situation. So if these are all legacy issues and predate the current management. Why is FINMA coming out with this announcement now, this censure now? It seems odd. Well, I think I would say a few things. The expectations for banks on the topic of anti-money laundering continue to increase literally month by month, year by year. And we continue to see, including even out of Europe recently, a renewed interest in continuing to strengthen the money laundering requirements. So I believe that one of the messages that FINMA is certainly sending to us and to the industry more broadly, because again, this was part of a broader industry review, is that we have to remain diligent and have to continue to improve our controls. I think certainly seeing the mistakes of other banks is actually instructive for different banks in the industry. We study each other's mistakes, and so laying out the legacy issues of the past sends a warning to other organizations to take these issues again very seriously. FINMA has a responsibility, whether this was in the past or not, to finish the enforcement review that they were doing. These things take quite a bit of time, as obviously the timing on this is evidence of. But they have to draw a conclusion, just as every other regulator does around the world, as to what their findings were, no matter how far back these issues go. Other European banks have been in the headlines over money laundering in the past few weeks. In fact, the last two weeks' podcasts, we've focused in on stories at ING and Danske Bank. Why do European banks seem to have such a big problem with AML compared to other institutions around the world? Well, I would say, first of all, detecting true Money laundering is very difficult, as the perpetrators can be highly creative criminals, and they continue to disguise their behavior. So it's hard work for everyone around the world. If you go back in time and look at the banks in the U.S., they really began this journey post-September 11th in the United States. And in fact, if you go back to, for example, 2012 and 2014, there were several very large billion-dollar fines on some of the largest U.S. banks at the time, as well as what we call cease and desist orders, which really dramatically restrict new business as a result of their anti-money laundering practices. So in some ways, I think the U.S. banks have been focused on this for a long time. Having said that, again, because the bar keeps rising, we are continuing to see fines and sanctions all around the world. So I think all banks are vulnerable if they do not remain focused on this. I also believe that the good news is, in some ways, there are new technology solutions that allow banks to be better at actually finding true money laundering because much of the historic approaches were very process-heavy, but almost like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And I think we have now better tools at our disposal to really root out the true money laundering that can come into your bank when some of these controls are not done well. In essence, the doors are open and the criminals can come in. And obviously, in some cases in Europe, the criminals were able to come in. Well, good luck with staying on top of it all. Thanks very much for joining us. 
My pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. So, Martin, you have heard what Lara Warner had to say. This is the third big money laundering story in the last three weeks, as I said. Why is it that Europe's banks keep hitting the headlines like this? What is wrong with them? I have a certain amount of sympathy for the banks. The criminals are getting ever cleverer. The banks have basically been handed responsibility by law enforcement agencies for policing the financial system. That is tricky, trying to spot criminals putting money through the financial system. However, there are a lot of cases of these European banks where it's not that they aren't spotting the potential wrongdoing or the red flags aren't being raised, it's they're choosing to ignore them. And even when people internally say to them, there's something suspicious going on here, we shouldn't be passing $30 billion through our Estonian branch, which is tiny, from non-residents. We should check what's going on there. That kind of thing does throw up red flags. It's just the banks choose to ignore them, it seems to me, because they're making good money out of this business. I think there is definitely a role for technology here. All the big banks talk about how they're using artificial intelligence, machine learning, patent recognition to spot areas of wrongdoing. But in the end, they still need the humans. And actually, they're still increasing the number of people they employ, even with artificial intelligence. So this isn't replacing the humans. And they still need humans. And the humans still have to make judgments on what is acceptable in terms of clients and what is not. And in the end, that's going to come down to banks making sure that the people are properly trained, that their rules are extremely clear, and that any wrongdoing is punished. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Martin. Let's hope we don't have a fourth week of money laundering stories. Fingers crossed on that. Let's move on to our second story and a look at Deutsche Bank as it steps up its plans for Brexit or steps up its transfer of business out of London and back to Frankfurt. Stephen, you led on this story the other day. A very interesting move. Tell us exactly what's been happening. Basically, Deutsche Bank has privately decided to scale up its plans to move assets out of London into Frankfurt and potentially even other centres around the world as well, because it's coming under increasing pressure from the European Central Bank about the scale of its operations that will be left behind outside of the European Union after Brexit. Now, a lot of this debate is quite technical between what a branch of a bank is and what a subsidiary is. But suffice to say, subsidiaries are much more expensive to run. They have to have things like independent boards. They have to have capital and liquidity requirements. So Deutsche Bank did want to try and avoid doing this, if at all possible. However, internally, executives are now looking at the requirements handed down by European regulators and thinking, well, our branch is going to look almost exactly like a subsidiary and the ECB is strongly pressuring us to create one. So we might as well go ahead and do this. No final decisions have been taken, but it, it kind of looks like the writing on the wall at the moment. And the flip side of that is in order to minimise the requirements for any such subsidiary or beefed up branch or whatever it ends up being, minimising the scale of that operation by relocating as much as possible to Frankfurt makes economic sense. Exactly. The smaller it is, the fewer people that are employed in there, the easier and, and cheaper it will be to run. So that's where they've come to. I mean, in one of the most drastic plans, they're looking to shrink it to smaller than their US holding company, which has about $142 billion of assets, according to the latest disclosure. So obviously, that's quite radical, bearing in mind that one of the latest estimates, this is a couple of years old from 2016, was that it had about 600 billion euros of assets in London. The London operation, which could, if those figures are anywhere near still true, we're basically talking about shrinking London to a quarter of what it exactly. currently is. 
this is dramatic. Let me bring in Martin. To what extent is Deutsche here representative of a broader truth about continental European banks and their operations in London? Because Deutsche is not the only bank that has branched its operations into London. BNP, Socgen, other European banks will have done the same. Are they going to come under the same pressure and relocate in the same way, do you think? I think they will. I think the point about Deutsche is it is the poster child for this issue. It's by far the biggest, has a vast balance sheet based here, having for many years run its corporate and investment banking operations out of the City of London. So in that respect, it's the one that everyone is watching. But certainly the likes of the French banks and, you know, to a lesser extent, some of the Italian banks and Dutch banks will also have issues around how much do they have to move in terms of their balance sheet, but also their workforce very closely linked to that. And it looks as though at the moment, as Stephen has said, that the um, European Central Bank is playing pretty hardball with these groups and saying, you've got to prepare for a very, very hard cliff edge type Brexit. And you've got to structure yourself in a way that gives us the ability to assess the risk that's going on in your trading operations. And that's the big derivative books, which are talking about hundreds of billions of euros worth of assets in these derivative books that are largely booked here, certainly for Deutsche's case in London. And how can the ECB allow them to keep those big books and all that risk in the UK and not have oversight of that? So that you know, indicates they just can't count on any kind of regulatory cooperation with the Bank of England. They're counting on a hard Brexit. And, and that is making life very difficult for these firms to plan for the future ahead. I think many of them are hoping that there'll be a transition period of at least two years where the status quo will be maintained. It'll give them more time to renegotiate contracts, move books of business, re-domicile entities. But all of those things take time. They're complicated, they're costly, and you don't want to do them in a rush. Well, it's interesting that Deutsche does seem to have expedited that transfer of booking centre and we'll have to wait and see what the other banks are going to do as well. Let's move on to our final story and a look at Goldman Sachs's management changes. Our US banking editor, Laura Noonan, um, spoke earlier to our US finance editor, Rob Armstrong, about the Goldman Sachs changes. So, Laura, DJ Saul has wasted a little time changing tunes as incoming CEO of Goldman. What are the key management changes? So in the last week we've seen the biggest management changes announced by David Solomon before he comes Goldman Sachs Chief Executive on the 1st of October. So what he's done is he's put a new Chief Financial Officer in charge of the bank that will be Stephen Scherer. Stephen Scherer is in charge of consumer banking now. He's best known for the Marcus Project which is their online only bank. He has also promoted an investment banker, John Waldron, to be president. President is, of course, the role that David Solomon himself now currently occupies. Then, alongside that, a couple of days later, the bank announced that the head of their Europe, Middle East and Africa business, Richard Nada, is also taking responsibility for the other territories outside of North America. And he gets Asia, and so he gets an expanded brief as well. So they're the main changes in the last couple of days. Around August, he also promoted someone to go head the securities division. So... These are kind of four big appointments he has made now before he comes in on the 1st of October. There have been rumours that Solomon and Mr Nada, the head of EMEA and GSI you just referred to, were not the best of friends, but he's staying and he has new responsibilities, as you say. What's going on? So it certainly seems as if they managed to put their differences to one side. 
or else there's been some kind of compromise reached because it looks as if Richard is very much in it now for the medium term at least. So there's been talk about Richard and whether he'll stay or not since the departure of his co-head and that's going back about three years, Richard's co-head. Michael Sherwood, he left Goldman Sachs International, so then Richard became the sole head of GSI and the sole head of Europe, Middle East and Africa. Some people thought that with the change in CEO, we'd also see a change in the office there. The thing to remember is that Goldman in the UK and in EMEA is in a very particular place. I mean, as they approached Brexit, Goldman would probably have had the least internationally elsewhere in the EU heading into Brexit, so they have arguably the most to do. And with that in mind, maybe now isn't a great time to change the head of Europe, Middle East and Africa. What other changes to personnel or strategy are we likely to see? So strategy, not a whole lot. I mean, the whole messaging from David Solomon has been around consistency that the bank isn't going to be doing anything mad. I mean, I think it makes sense for him to put more of his own people around him. One of the things we'll be closely watching is that the people David has been promoting, largely aside from the securities hire, are people who have come up through the investment banking side of the house and then with Stephen Chair from the consumer side of the house. What we haven't seen a whole lot of is him promoting people from the trading side of the house. And that's always been a tension between Goldman Sachs. So in the run up to the financial crisis, trading was very much the bank's big business. Now you have a very much investment banking led leadership. And I think David knows he has a piece of work to convince the trading and the securities part of the bank that he's also on their side and that he also values their contribution to the bank. So I think what he does on that side of the house is going to be interesting. And if he tweaks the leadership there, changes some of the strategies there, I think that's something that's going to be watched. I mean, Goldman at the moment is already in a strategic plan and that plan is all about diversifying the revenue base and that's part of what they're doing with the consumer banks so that they have a toe in the water of the online consumer banking market, which could be a lucrative one for them. And they argue that they're going to do well there because other banks have been trying to pare back the legacy cost centres, they've been trying to pare back the branches. Goldman Sachs, of course, will be starting from zero branches. So they're lean, they have the advantages of a fintech, they would argue, but they have the big bank knowledge. Then on the other hand, what they're also trying to do within the investment bank is change the client base. So Goldman traditionally relied on the very largest clients and, and the most active clients. They're now trying to get more of the corporate business because the thing about the very large and active clients is they can make quite a volatile revenue stream. They can be very active for a period of time and then when the markets get difficult, they aren't active at all. And that's in Goldman's investment bank revenue being more volatile than some of its peers. So what they're trying to do is get more of the corporates, more of the traditional client base of a city or a Bank of America or a JP Morgan even. So that's something that I think David was very much on board with the outgoing CEO Lloyd Blankfein strategy on that and we can expect to see him, I think, accelerate that. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Stephen here in the studio, our guest from Credit Suisse, Lara Warner, their Head of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs, Laura Noonan and Rob Armstrong in New York, and also thank you for listening. If you're not a subscriber already, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.